From 11FS, this is InsureTech Insider News. Today, we bring you Cowbell raises $100 million to build out its AI-based cyber insurance platform for small and medium businesses. Lloyds of London finds insurer Atrium over initiation games. And WaterLeak InsureTech Ondo completes its £8 million London SPAC IPO. That's a lot of letters for you. All this and more on today's show. So, hello and welcome to InsureTech Insider episode 115. I'm Benjamin Ensor. Today's show is a news show where we will be talking about the most interesting happenings in insurance and InsureTech from the past few weeks. As always, I'm joined by some amazing guests. First up, we have Louise Berry-Terry, CEO and founder of Pickle. How are you doing today, Louise? I'm good, thank you. It's great to be here. And for people who don't know uh, Pickle well, can you just give us a one-sentence summary? Yeah, we specialise in insurance for the sharing economy, in particular the Airbnb market space. Wonderful. Welcome to the show. We're also joined by James Harrison, UKI Head of Insurance at Dun & Bradstreet. How are you doing today, James? Great. Thank you, Benjamin. Uh, delighted to be here. Big fan of the show. Welcome. It's very good to have you with us. And last but not least, we also have Khan Saroya, CEO and co-founder of Cover. How are you doing, Khan? Good, good. Thanks for having me. I think Cover is pretty well known among our listeners, but uh, why don't you just give us the one-sentence summary anyway, just in case? Yeah. Our, our primary business is an MGA, a national insurance agency in the United States, focusing on property risks. Fantastic. Thank you all so much for, for joining me. Let's get on with the show. So our first story is this uh, story from Cowbell, which has raised $100 million to build out its AI-based cyber insurance platform for small and medium-sized businesses. This was uh, reported in TechCrunch as well as various other media. So Cowbell, which is a provider of cyber insurance for small and medium-sized enterprises, has secured $100 million in capital led by Anthemis Group. The company was founded by Jack Kudale in 2019 and raised $20 million in the Series A back in March 2021. One in five uh, U.S. SMEs remain uninsured or underinsured for cyber risk, presenting Cowbell with an unprecedented opportunity to lead this underserved market segment. And Cowbell estimates that cyber insurance enforced premiums in the U.S. will total $100 billion by 2030. So how big do we think the, the cyber reinsurance market is, is going to be. Do we see this as a, as a huge growing risk? James, perhaps I'll start with you. Um, what did you think of this story? It's a really interesting one. And, um, you know, obviously the idea is getting a lot of traction uh, with some very successful funding rounds. Um, and in principle, the idea makes a lot of sense. You know, they're testing the vulnerability in terms of the cyber exposure and then illustrating that impact of loss. And I totally agree. You know, the uh, the SME market is completely uh, under underserved and underinsured, not just within cyber, but in across a whole host of different areas of uh, of product lines within insurance. And I think therein lies sort of lies a challenge. Um, you know, a lot of insurers, a lot of brokers are looking to try and you know break into this space or maximise their their opportunity and growth in the space, especially post COVID. And you know. With cyber being, you know, fairly a niche product, and you know, alongside other SME-driven opportunities, it, it comes down to actually educating, I think, the buyer on the value of that product. You know, the SME owners, um, you know, typically they are confident in their product, they're confident in their in their customer, but they need help across the you know other areas of the operating model, and that can be from you know, other areas of financial services, accounting, insurance, you know, so forth. And I think what the last few years has shown us is that. And you'll, you'll hear this on the show obviously quite a bit and, and along other commentators is that the SMEs, you know, insurance is a grudge purchase. 
SME buying <laughs> behavior is similar to consumer. Therefore, they are going to see as, uh, you know, insurance as a gross purchase as well, typically. And if they're managing their P&L, they need to ha- have that full understanding of what they're getting from that cyber product as well for it to, for, for it to have value. I'm interested that you said it was a niche product. I mean, should it be a niche product? I, I, I'm not disputing what you're saying, but should it be a niche product? Well, you think about the, the insurance products that they're going to go for 101. Yeah. It's, you know, cyber is not going to be in that list, right? You would expect that business interruption insurance was a product that SME owners should be buying, but they're not. You know, I think I read something the other day where it was about 40% of businesses, SME businesses, were buying business interruption insurance. Then the pandemic happens and then they haven't got that cover, right? So, there's plenty of other other products out there that SMEs are not buying and should be. And that is a message back to the insurance community. They need to be showing the value in those products. They need to be showing the coverage available to those businesses. And there needs to be value-added services. I would imagine here, you know, there's an opportunity to, you know, whilst you accept a premium on, on, on that insurance for cyber, you're also able to, you know, showcase or give them quick guidance on how to make their, their business more robust when it comes to cyber protection. Um, that, that's what has to happen. We have to be moving towards loss prevention rather than just loss indemnity. Khan, what did you, what did you make of this news? Yeah, like it's, uh, it's not surprising. You know, you've got Coalition, you've got Cowbell, you've got a, a bunch of these guys that have entered the market, started to put on pretty significant amounts of premium. And if you look at purely just the empirical evidence, you know, folks are going out to the reinsurance market looking for capacity, and the reinsurance market is kind of make, trying to make heads or tails of, you know, how to price this, how to think about this, and then ultimately moving back to, you know, first principles, thinking about the coverages, and then thinking about whether or not, um, you know, they should just take a flyer on it, look at what the losses like turn out to be, and and move on. I, you know, I, I kind of agree with James. It's um, it's tough to say what what's driving the acceleration. It's not necessarily something that's top of mind for most SMEs. They're not like most SMEs are not technology companies. And to the extent that they are thinking about these things, you know, it's usually like coverage for ransom, uh, uh, you know, ransom for critical systems that prevent them from operating and, and things like that. So it's very hard for me to decompose how much of it is like a demand pull from the market. And how much of it is actually just an acceleration that's predicated on underpricing um, uh, with folks who aren't necessarily – in my, my personal viewpoint on this is the, the risk is systemically underpriced, right? Like you're, hmm. you're, asking, you're asking folks who are um, – to, to gauge what, uh, you know, the worthiness of something that will happen, a question of just as when. Um, so so it, it's amorphous. I, I do I think the market will continue to grow? Uh, yes, absolutely. Will uh, it grow at the rate that you know folks are thinking it will grow? Unclear. Um, and you know, are the rates adequate for the risks that are, are in the coverages that are being offered? Also unclear. How important is the the artificial intelligence angle here, and the and the the, the sort of the use of big 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 data sets? I mean, Louis, this may be not a question for you. I don't know if you <laughs> um, is is AI part of the answer here? Um, is 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 that a way to get a better handle on the risks here, do we think? Well, I think it, I think it depends how they're using the AI. Um, so um, certainly um, in, in my background, uh, in, in pricing insurance premiums, we've, we've typically used um, generalized linear models. Um, you know, there have been some use of um, machine learning and things like that with GBMs and stuff um, recently. I would have thought with the AI, they're probably just trying to use that to 
understand data and identify uh, potential factors um, that might influence rate rating. But you know, it it depends how they're using it. Really, um, I don't think AI necessarily will add a competitive edge to the pricing compared to some of the te techniques that are out there. It just might speed up the process of trying to identify factors that are important in modeling. So I think AI often gets used as a sort of a buzzword um, <laughs> to, and everyone sort of assumes that if you're using it, that, that, that rating is going to suddenly be more sophisticated, but that's not it necessarily. Must be, it must be clever because it's AI, right? Because <laughs> machines are more intelligent than people, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's not necessarily the case. While some of those techniques are, are really advancing and they can you know, speed up um, analyst processes, they don't necessarily mean that um, they're actually going to be providing more sophisticated techniques. Um, so the insurance market has been using really sophisticated techniques for, for decades now. Um, so um, I think I agree with a lot of what the other guys have said. Really, is you know I think it's it's you know fantastic they've got this this fundraise. I think clearly there is a you know big market in the US, but I'm not sure how much it's growing and how much education is needed um, to bring SMEs on board because um, I think you know looking at even just the pandemic, um, you know people haven't had their business interruption claims paid out in the way that was expected. So to try and then upsell them on top of, you know, business interruption, a cyber policy, you know, feels like a tough task. One of the things I thought was was very interesting was was the company was putting itself forward as not just an insurer, but also trying to act as a cybersecurity provider and trying to provide companies with advice in reducing risk. And to me, you know, that's where insurtechs gets really interesting is when you're not just, you know, cutting out middlemen or, or, or whatever or using machine learning, but you're actually trying to reduce the risk by helping companies understand the risks they're exposed to and taking actions to mitigate those risks. I mean, that's really, you know, the, the promise of insurance is to, to reduce the risk, not just pay, pay out. What, what, what did, you know, how, how big an opportunity do we think that is? Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And um, this is what I was mentioning before about there should be, and I think we're now starting to see it, and it's been driven by InsureTax, is this idea of moving away from just loss indemnity products to loss prevention. When I'm talking to my clients, I always bring up an InsureTech flock uh, that was looking at drone insurance. And because it was a brand new risk without loss history, they had to provide premium uh, you know, options to, to their policyholders without having that loss understanding. So they were trying to influence um, actual behavior. And that is, you can, you can fly your drone at a certain time of day or away from certain airfields and so forth. And when you talk to some uh, mainstream insurers, again, well, okay, that makes sense for, for, for drones and so forth, but how does it work for my specialty lines or other different you know, areas? And it's quite simple. You know, if we're looking at marine and energy, you know, there's reams and reams of information there that, you know, a, a very abstract example, you know, if you're sailing your cargo vessel through the Gulf of Aden at 16 knots an hour rather than 15, that reduces the propensity around uh, piracy attacks by, you know, a serious amount. And there's loads of that information there where the insurer is actually really well placed to provide that to the policyholder. And that's the value added services that we're talking about here. You know, that's how you create that stickiness, that trust element with your client, or with your policyholder. So I, I, I think this is a great idea. If you can actually provide a, a holistic risk management product, which insurance product is just one part of it, including loss prevention, then I think we're onto something that's really, really strong. Fantastic. Khan, let's wrap this story up with, with you. I just want to pick up on the point. Louise made the point about how hard it was going to be to, to try and cross-sell cyber insurance to SMBs in the States. Do you think she's right on that? Or do you think Cowbell might, you know, might manage it? Well, it's certainly not the entirety of, 
the SMB market that's addressable here, right? So, you know, when you're, when you're thinking about the size of opportunity is, it's probably some fraction of, of what's being represented, at least today. You know, I, I just, I did want to touch upon the, the combination of like a value added services oriented business in conjunction with a, you know, insurance offering. I, I agree. I think it tends to make sense. And actually, the services part might end up being the higher margin part of their of their business. You know, so long as the work that's being done is actually real, right? There's there's still this Cambrian explosion of folks who are going out with this kind of narrative. Mm-hmm. It, it remains to be seen whether or not there's the hand waving around AI, which boils down to simple stats, or whether there is you know some tr- some tried tested true. Uh, business and security logic that's codified and tested against all of the clients. Like it, it, it it's going to come down to, hey, do you have access to data? Are the SMBs willing to actually give it up? Are they going to? Are they willing to go through the trouble of, uh, you know, an audit before buying a policy, or do they care about just getting it in place and moving on? Right. If it were me as a betting man, I would say they'd take the path of least resistance. Fantastic. Okay, let's move on to our next story. Uh, which comes from here in the UK, which is that Lloyds of London has fined insurer Atrium over initiation games. This was reported very widely, uh, among others, by the BBC. Um, Lloyds of London has fined one of its member firms £1 million due to a culture of heavy drinking, initiation games and sexual remarks about female staff by some male managers. Atrium underwriters admitted charges relating to bullying and misconduct during annual boys' nights out. Some of the inappropriate behaviour was led, participated in and condoned by two senior leaders, Lloyds found. The fine of £1,050,000, slightly unusual amount, uh, is the largest ever imposed by Lloyds' independent disciplinary committee and it's first for non-financial misconduct. So there's a lot to unpick here. Is this a bigger issue than one insurer? And is this a bigger issue than just Lloyds of London? Is this a widespread problem in insurance or is it just Lloyds of London? I'm not sure whether or not it's it's more widespread than, than Lloyds of London. I mean, I think that um, certainly having worked in the UK um, insurance market my whole career, um, it doesn't surprise me that uh, this, this unfortunately, that this sort of behaviour happens. Um, I don't think it's confined just to, to Lloyds. Um, but but sadly, um, too often there is a kind of you know a, a boys' network, and uh, and that can um, you know that that can that can end in in, in disastrous happenings. Uh, there was the ergo um, sort of party uh, that's you know, yes, quite infamous um, from uh, uh, from the early two thousands. Um, and um, you know, whilst I think things have. Um, moved on a bit. Uh, whether they've moved on enough yet is is probably questionable. That's a really good question. I mean, have have things moved on? Because this has been going on for as you know for decades in insurance and other industries. But you know, it's been going on for decades in insurance. Is is this the tail end of bad behaviour, or is this just the tip of the iceberg? It's a tough one. Um, so I, I I started off in the Lloyd's market as a broker. I did a graduate program, and then I actually then I specialised in upstream energy. I did that for about three, four years. You know, it was my first proper job. And, uh, you know, I, there was times where I absolutely, you know, I really, really enjoyed it. It's a, it's a super sociable environment. You know, you are encouraged to make relationships with 
individuals that are at the same level, you know, that graduate level at other businesses. And that's through sports teams, um, you know, away days, sports events, you know, lunches and stuff like that. Because the idea is that you would be in that industry for the, the length of your career and you're building these relationships with people and you may need to call on those relationships, you know, if there's a, you know, a tough renewal or, or, or so forth. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, at time, you know, yeah, look, you know, it felt like a, a, an extension of university at times, which was, which was fun. But, you know, unfortunately it's, there are, there's too many examples like this where things have gone, you know, too more closer to the social and out and just, you know, flat out out of order than keeping things professional. So, yeah, I, you know, I, I, it's, the Lloyds of London market is certainly in focus at the moment and, um, you know, more should be looked at to, to try and you know, remove these sort of um, stories and, 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 and you know, better practice, you know, uh, in, in the way, you know, people conduct themselves. So. Khan, are you, have you seen similar incidents in your career or heard of similar incidents? Um, is, is this just a British problem? Um, <laughs> we talked about Ergo briefly. We know it's not just a British problem. What's your view? Uh, well, well, I, I don't, I don't come from reinsurance, and, and I don't come from insurance. I, you know, I've been working on technology companies now for the better part of most of my career. Um, what, what I can say here is that culture is usually a function of who you hire, the systems you have in place to reward and retain people, and ultimately, like the, the off ramps for folks who are not necessarily working out, making sure that you're, you're keeping the bar relatively high uh, to. Uh, to keep the culture relatively strong, and it is going to be a composite of everybody that you you end up bringing on. Um, with respect to Lloyd's of London, uh, you know, I I think that I've in passing seen examples of them kind of pushing on uh, revising uh, you know policy around drinking at lunch, uh, dress codes uh, it, it, to to somewhat modernize the marketplace. It's not surprising to me that stuff like this happens. But I, but I can say, uh, you know, the vast majority of reinsurance professionals that I've uh, had an opportunity to engage with conduct themselves in a fair, honest, and respectable way, right? Uh, but is it, is this still lurking? Yeah, it is. It's going to be a function of the people that are working there. Uh, and and mm. perhaps it requires the marketplace and uh, the broader industry uh, in general to be a little bit more aggressive when it comes to the not just the the hiring, promoting, retaining, but getting rid of folks that are not a, a suitable fit culturally. Do we think the fine was big enough? I mean, it's it's, it's a million pounds, which is obviously a lot of money to, to us as individuals, but in the context of uh, Atrium's sort of 711 million in gross written premium, it's uh, substantial, but not, you know, it's not going to knock them over. Louise, do you think that the fine is big enough? Do you think this sends a strong signal to other firms to look, you cannot let some man behave in in these outrageous ways or do you think it'll just quietly continue to go on and people will turn up you know as khan was sort of saying you know a few companies will just turn a blind eye to badly behaved or you know completely inappropriate behavior from a few employees yeah i mean i think it is it is a sizable fine um but i think you know like khan was saying i'm just not sure whether or not it's really going to mean anything to the people who are who are you know sort of behaving like this i think that there is a whole cultural uh, systemic problem uh, here in in the marketplace which does need to you know it, it might well be a generational thing it might well be i think the you know younger generation are less tolerant um, of this type of behavior and it might be as we start to see um some of the you know the the older generations that are passing through that this starts to reduce but it is about um you know who we've got um you know being retained in the marketplace and um 
you know, and who is who is um, who is working there, which is which is causing this this cultural change. And the more we can diversify the people that are brought into the market from different industries, you know, be that insurtechs um, or technologists, um, and, and the people that we recruit into, you know, brokerage roles um, and into places like Lloyd's of London, the more we're going to start to um, change uh, that culture. And that's you know what really needs to happen, I think, rather than fines. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. And I'm sure that things like the Me Too movement will have meant that maybe younger employees, particularly younger female employees, are much less willing to tolerate this kind of behaviour. But it shouldn't have to be, you know, women shouldn't have to complain for for for, for men to behave in a, just a decent human way. I mean, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's not really enough, is it? Um, do you think other companies will take a lesson from this? Do you think this will have any impact? Do you think there will be directors at other companies thinking, hang on a minute, we've got this chap who's a bit, you know, who's a bit Larry. And, you know, do you think it will cause other companies to sort of question what's going on within their own walls? I, I, would, ima- I would imagine that what's been happening for a number of years now, actually, is that they're looking to, you know, a lot of the syndicates, a lot of the brokers operating in the Lloyd's market are looking to put measures in place to remove the instances like this. But yeah, this has got to sort of accelerate that as well. Um, you, you know, it's now the time for syndicates to be looking in, internally and understand how they can remove that sort of these, these cultural traits. So yeah, I, I'd imagine that's already in place. We're looking um, we're all being accelerated. Yeah, I mean, honestly, this feels really immaterial, right? Like if, if this was if this was coupled with, hey, like we've also rationalized away part of the the team that w- was responsible for this. I, I think I, it would have more teeth. Honestly, mm-hmm. it is a, I mean, it's a bit, of, it's a bit of a kick in the teeth, right? If you're thinking about a, a career in, in this industry, this is an adequate protection, right? You have options. You can work, go work at a tech company you can go work elsewhere. So if you're really serious about pulling in talent and a diverse set of talent that, that's truly representative, right? You're, you're not going to accomplish that by doing something like this. Yeah. I mean, to, to the point you just made, Louise, I mean, if the answer is recruiting more diverse people into the into the industry, this is a disaster for insurance because it says to every young woman, and to your point, Khan, possibly people from all sorts of diverse groups, this is not an industry that welcomes and tolerates people from a wide variety of backgrounds. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think uh, they've got to consider that there's, you know, a lot of initiatives that are, um, you know, being run by, you know, Lloyd's and other organizations across the insurance market about how do we improve both racial and gender diversity uh, within within our marketplaces and and you know this is not doing us any favors at all um so um it is it is this type of behavior which is probably preventing you know younger people from from joining the older institutions um thankfully you know many of the um you know insure techs that i work with many of the insurance companies even the the older ones that i work with you know have have a lot of this um, you know, firmly resigned to the past, and they're the ones that are going to win, and the talent. Well, let's hope that we don't have another story like this on InsureTech Insider. Let's hope this is evidence of the system working and um, bad companies getting punished um, rather than just the tip of the iceberg. Okay, so for now, we're going to take a very quick break, and we'll be back very soon. Looking for user journey and UX inspiration? Join hundreds of subscribers using 11FS Pulse to cut down on their UX research time and benchmark against the best fintechs. Access over 4,000 user journeys from global brands like Monzo, Revolut, Chase, and Robinhood. And learn how to design winning customer propositions with our expert analysis. Get a demo today at 11FS.com forward slash pulse. (laughs) 
Welcome back. Let's get on with the show. So our next story is that water leak insurtech Ondo has completed an £8 million London SPAC IPO. So this was reported in UK Tech News and other media. The UK-based insurtech Ondo has done a public listing on the London Stock Exchange through a takeover by a special purpose acquisition company, SPAC or SPAC. Ondo has created a water leak detection system called LeakBot used by firms such as Hiscock, DirectLine and Top Denmark to help customers detect leaks in their homes. The company has raised £3.4 million through fundraising at 12 pence per share and will have an issued price market capitalisation of about £8.2 million. The company has said it's the first insurtech to list on London's primary market. Ondo also said it will use the proceeds of the IPO to expand internationally in Europe, Scandinavia and the US. So we could talk about special purpose acquisition vehicles and capital market stuff. I think maybe a more interesting story is this. Is this a big is this a big deal for UK insurtech that we've now got Ondo listed in the market if in a slightly roundabout backwards route? Is this exciting news, Louise? What do you think? Yeah, I think it's um, I think it's interesting that we've got um, I guess one of the first IPOs in in the UK for an insurtech. I'm not sure if there have been any others. Obviously, there's been um, a number in the US last year, um, and I think a year on, I'm not not so sure how well those IPOs have gone. So. Um, it will be uh, it will be interesting to see how how this goes, and you know, over the next year or so, whether or not um, they increase value or whether they decrease value in value, as we've seen with some of the ones in the US. So I think it will be you know a really interesting to showcase what the UK has got from a talent perspective. What do you think about the company, James? I've I've always been a big fan of of Leakbot because of the same reason I was talking about earlier that anything that actually helps prevent the catastrophe before it happens is, in my mind, a good thing. Um, what, what do you think about Ondo and LeakBot? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's again, it's going towards that trend of supporting customers and policyholders on on managing their own risk profiles. And that can only be a good thing. You know, no, no policyholder wants to go through the claims process. So let's get, let's make sure they don't get there. You know, let's have, let's help them not, not get there. But I guess, you know, just pulling on from what Louise mentioned there, it's, it, it's great positive signaling for the UK and short tech market, albeit I think it's caught, caught everyone off guard. Uh, we potentially would have expected a few others to have made IPO before beforehand. And I would imagine, you know, Khan yourself, you're seeing a number there of 8 million uh, as, a, as a SPAC. And, you know, I would imagine US tech companies would think that's probably a Series A funding round. And I think that's what I find pretty surprising about it, which is it seems pretty low uh, to be publicly traded. You know, I think last, it was just last year, you know, there was two significant uh, SPAC deals. One was Kazoo, that went public, $7 billion. Another was Babylon, you know, three billion, and that's kind of the numbers that you would expect for for us back. So I think that that's quite interesting, and I'd I'd love to understand more about what the rationale behind that was. Yeah, I agree. It's uh, I I looked at it and I was like, that's an eight million dollar post money valuation. That's a you could do that on a safe, uh, and and just have that rolling, right? Yeah, like it's a. Uh, it's tough because it puts them in a it puts them in a weird spot where they have to find product market fit in public, right? And you and usually what you're trying to do is you're you're trying to iterate to proving out product market fit and traction, and it makes it very very hard for you to pivot and to adjust your strategy if 
you know, you're, you're now going to be subject to, uh, you know, oversight and reporting at some point at a, on a quarterly basis. I'm not really sure what led them to back into this decision. And it's not it's not a brand new company either. I mean, they've been around for a few years. I mean, it's great that they've they've got the backing of some some big insurance companies already. But as you say, James, it's a you know it's a very small number. And and Khan, yeah, it sets them up for it sets them up for some challenges. You know, Louise, do you, were you similarly you know like James? Were you were you taken a bit? By surprise by this? Yeah, I think I think certainly the approach and the value is uh, yeah. is 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 definitely interesting. I mean, yeah, it, it does look more like a Series A size um, thing. So I you know I'd be interested to understand what the what the rationale was for why they why they've done it. Um, but um, but yeah, I, I don't know whether it you know whether there's a, a case for going um, earlier or, or or later on some of these. These IPOs just seem to be getting um, earlier and earlier. So I don't know whether there was. Uh, um, you know, a capital markets reason for that, whether there's um, you know, a slowing of capital at, at the later stage at the moment, I'm not sure. Okay, let's move to the question about the, the sort of smart home devices more widely. Um, have our insurance companies moving fast enough to take advantage of sort of the Internet of Things and the capabilities of devices like this? Because you know, they've been around for a few years now, maybe, you know, towards 10 years in some cases, and yet Insurance companies have been fairly slow. What do we think? Is, insu- is the industry moving fast enough to take advantage of technologies like this? I mean, is that the, is that the problem? You know, is, is the reason this is such a low valuation because insurance companies aren't moving fast enough? What do you think? Um, I, I don't know that there's enough margin in the in the business to support some of these devices, right? Like if you, and I, I, I love Asaf at Hippo and I have a Hippo and home insurance policy and a big part of you know, the narrative there is, you know, you have leak detection and you have other, dev- you have other devices that help, you know, mitigate risk and ostensibly lower loss ratios. I would be very curious to see what the actual data, uh, you know, what the data says on customers receiving these kits, actually installing them, and then feeding, feeding data back to the service providers. My gut says that it's probably pretty low. It's hard. It's generally speaking pretty hard to change consumer behavior. And folks don't want the cognitive overhead of even getting past the hurdle of installing these things, typically speaking. So I think there are two problems. There isn't enough margin. And then you have consumer behavior that you need to get a, a, you know, ahead of. And, you know, there's a carrot in the stick, clearly. You can you offer discounts, you know, if, if once you've validated that there's, this data is kind of flowing. And then the, the stick clearly is you raise rates if, if they don't. But uh, hard to tell. Uh, but I, I can say that, generally speaking, people are averse to doing things they don't typically do. It's a little bit like telematics, isn't it, where the theory is great. And for teenagers, it's great. And for certain fleets and so on, its adoption has been quite widespread, but it's struggling. I think you could be right, Khan, on the on the cost of the device. James, do, do, do you agree with that? Yeah, well, you know, I, I see an opportunity, you know, my hat is usually always in commercial specialty. And I see an opportunity within the specialty sector around you know, operational sensory data. You can see that working quite well. You know, oil rigs, for instance, you know, that there can be something there around, you know, if you're drilling in a high temperature, high pressure world, why aren't insurers using that sensory data there, for instance, just, you know, to help, you know, again, you could provide, a, 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 you know, provide advice there, or it could be looking at actually you know, providing innovation around, you know, um, around your actual products. You know, it can be, look, we will insure you up until a certain point, And then after that, you know, it, it, there's loads of opportunities there. And so I can see these sort of ideas doing well in other sectors, um, but in the consumer space, there's yeah, it's going to be difficult. You know, it, it's it's harder to get that buy-in from consumers. 
So sort of to Khan's point, the cost of the device and then the cost of getting the customer to actually install the device and use it properly is potentially greater than the margin you might make by slightly reducing the risk on some of those policies. Okay, so it sounds like we're not going to be buying the stock. <laughs> this is not investment advice. <laughs> um, Louise, any final thoughts on this story before we wrap this one up? Yeah, I, I kind of completely agree with that. I think that, you know, with your average um, consumer home insurance policy being in the what, 150 to 200 pound range, um, escape of water is, you know, a, quite a large um, element of that from a claims perspective. But I think the potential that the leak bot has to reduce that, you know, is is probably quite slim. Um, so I think it is probably a question of it's not I don't think it's a question of adoption from insurers. I imagine there's quite a few that have tested this, but it's it's probably more a case that it's not delivering the margin of benefit um, that, that maybe is needed in order to justify the cost of production of the product. I imagine I will be getting a message from the marketing team at Ondo to um, <laughs> refute this analysis. However, <laughs> probably I think it's I think it's a fantastic idea it's just uh, yeah whether it has worked out in practice is uh, is um, you know whether they've found the right market or not I don't know um, but it does yeah. uh, you know on paper it sounds like a fantastic idea I want it to work and I wish them every success yeah they might find it you know James point they might find a happy home in, in uh, the commercial realm as opposed to the personal lines realm commercial property you know straightforward that would work but you heard it here first good advice from Dun & Bradstreet <laughs> Thank <Always> you. <laughs> okay, uh, so let's move on to our uh, last of the sort of the big stories that we're going to cover. And this is a little bit of an unusual one. So Zurich Insurance has removed the Z symbol, or Z if you're from America, <laughs> after the letter has been used by the Russian military and used by uh, sort of right-wing nationalists to show support for the Ukraine war. This was reported by Reuters. So the company has said that it's removing the logo, which is a white Z on a blue background, as probably most of our listeners know, because it didn't want to be misinterpreted as supporting Russia in the conflict. We are temporarily removing the use of the letter Z from social channels, where it appears in isolation and could be misinterpreted, the company told Reuters in a statement. We're monitoring the situation closely and will take further action if and when required, the company said. The letter, as, as most of our listeners probably know, has been used to mark Russian military vehicles taking part in the invasion of Ukraine and has subsequently been adopted by sort of Russian nationalists supporting the war. Uh, it's been prominent on sort of pro-Kremlin rallies. Separately, Zurich uh, said earlier this month that it was no longer taking on new domestic customers in Russia and will not renew existing local business. So did sort of gestures like this matter? Does it matter that Zurich has done this? Is this the right thing to have done? Should Zurich be doing more? What do we think? Louise, what do you think? Yeah, I think it's um, a good gesture that they have uh, they've taken this down. Um, I think um, especially, you know, especially at this, this time, it shows, you know, good support uh, for the people of Ukraine. And um, I think, you know, the, the symbol was pretty similar to what's out there on the Russian tanks. So I think it was, you know, kind of well done for them to recognise that and take it down as they don't want to be associated at this point. To play devil's advocate, I mean, it is just one of the 26 letters of the Roman alphabet. You know, it's used for other things as well. Did they need to do this? It feels superficial. If it was accompanied with a material donation, I, I would say, you know, kudos to them. But this seems like a overactive social media team that uh, wanted to take a preemptive step. 
it's really non-news, I think. Yeah. So maybe yeah, if they done it, if they done it as part of a wider wider variety of other things and so on, it's sort of more. You're saying it's perhaps more virtue signaling. I want to lean towards Louise because I want to I want to believe Louise's view that it actually it it, it is it's come from the right place, um, rather than your, your slightly more skeptical view, Khan, but, you, but, but I, <laughs> you could be right. Moving on from Zurich sort of more widely, how, how much is the insurance industry being hit by the invasion of, of U- Ukraine? So obviously we've seen insurance companies, including Zurich, saying, okay, we're going to reduce the amount of business and so on. How, how bad is this for the insurance industry is the insurance industry being hit hard by this you know because obviously there's many industries that are being affected um, how big a deal is this for the insurance industry do we think i mean the first the first order effect is on the aviation space right so you've got uh well like 10 billion in assets have kind of been taken off the table these these le- these leased planes you've got an indeterminate amount of probably cyber liability exposure for some for some subset again of businesses and probably not, you know, uh, small or medium-sized enterprises. Uh, you know, I don't have much of a view outside of that. Like, uh, th- there tend to be, and James probably, James and Louise probably know this, like, there are some coverages that accommodate for acts of war, but I think acts of war are, generally speaking, excluded, right, from quite a number of things. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the buyers of war coverage tend to be, you know, government and top, um, you know, the, the, the largest companies. So, um, you know, that's going to be few and far between here, but I would imagine, you know, what you know, the obvious is is some of the um, some of the exposures that insurers have, you know, in the in the in the country, whether that's you know oil and gas rigs, marine vessels, and so forth. But it's also about getting you know your house in order in terms of you know your approaches to sanctions checking, uh, screening, compliance, and so forth. You know that that's a moving beast at the moment. That's changing each day, and so they need to have the right solutions in place. To have that full understanding around unique beneficial ownership of the businesses that they insure, and yeah, you know, like I say, that is moving at a rapid pace, very quickly, and it's something that they should be looking at, you know, front and centre. We've seen pressure on a lot of um, retailers and sort of consumer brands to withdraw from Russia. You know, companies like Zurich have been, you know, in Russia for a, for a long time. You know, like many Western companies, have moved into Russia when Russia opened up after the, the sort of fall of the Iron Curtain. Do we think we'll, we'll start seeing similar pressure being applied to sort of insurance companies that continue to operate in Russia? That we'll see sort of Western consumers putting pressure on on various different firms to to withdraw from Russia and close close down their businesses fully. We, have we seen that coming through at all? Sounds like not. We haven't really seen that. Yeah, I've not personally seen anything, but it wouldn't surprise me if that was uh, already happening, as we've seen in a number of other sectors. Perhaps it's because insurance brands are a bit more forgettable and and a bit less prominent than, let's say, McDonald's or Burger King or H and M or or whatever, and therefore they're a bit less front of mind um, for consumers. So there's perhaps less awareness of of which insurance companies continue to operate in Russia. Okay, well now it's time to move on to our final story of the week, which is about pet insurance. And (laughs) we picked up on a story in Country Living, which is a magazine that probably not all of our listeners read. It's all about homes and interiors and things like that. And it's about the most bizarre pet insurance claims in the UK. So uh, Aviva has revealed that accidental damage caused by naughty dogs accounted for more than 800 claims in the UK over the past year. Those claims have been valued at around £1,000 each, 
with dogs ruining kitchen taps, knocking over paint pots, breaking electrical items while left unattended in the house. One couple were forced to make a claim after Whiskey, a Labrador and Great Dane cross, was caught flooding the kitchen on their house security system. Should have had a leak bot for that. The young canine turned on the cold water tap while his owners were out of the house and caused around £4,000 worth of damage. Meanwhile, some owners have been forced to take out claims after being tripped up by their dogs. One example saw an owner spill their drink on an expensive keyboard after their pet got caught tangled up under their feet. Has anybody got a cat? I don't know if, if any of you got cats. My cat is constantly under my feet. Um, <laughs> and then other accidents involving electrical items have seen laptops fall into fish tanks, TVs come off their stands, and mobile phones knocked off countertops. So, firstly, James, Khan, Louise, which of you have pets? <laughs> what pets do you have? Well, I, I, I don't, unfortunately, but I hope it's in the pipeline. But it just feels like insurers probably need to be excluding uh, pet damage from home coverage. <laughs> and it's too costly for them, surely. Louise, are you an animal lover? I am, yeah. I've got two little cats. And have they wrecked havoc in your house yet? Um, certainly, they've got a lot more demanding over lockdown. They've got so used to us uh, being at home and, and working here that, uh, uh, you know, Quite often they uh, they they do uh, they're quite naughty. My 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 little cat has turned into a sort of a habit of uh, trying to break into my study whilst I'm in here, and and she literally tries to pull up the carpet in the corner of my room if I don't <laughs> let her in immediately. Um, so uh, I just wonder whether or not there's a few bad habits that have started to be be formed during lockdown, which has caused a few more incidents. And how about you, Khan? So I have one of these naughty dogs. He's a, a, a Jack Russell uh, Beagle mix. He's a little bit older now, so he's about 12. But, you know, in his heyday, he could cause some real havoc. These are super high energy, super fast running, you know, get tangled up with you, want to be playing with you all the time. So I can see, I can definitely see some of this stuff happening in my own household. Funnily enough, just last week, I was, uh, I was talking to my boss and... Um, he had left his dog in the car whilst he, which he had to, whilst he's watching a rugby match with his son playing rugby. That is, is uh, his dog unfortunately suffers from a bit of anxiety issues clearly, and had managed to eat all the seats, the steering wheel. You know, it's completely bare, and it's. it's I think he told me it's in the region of like three thousand pounds worth of damage because you know it's a posh German car, and you know that you're not expecting that on a Sunday when you take your son to play rugby. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> So, so James, you made the point earlier about maybe maybe insurers shouldn't include pet damage on home insurance policies. It sounds like it should also apply to motor policies. Yeah, I mean, it probably makes it quite economical sense. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, is is pet insurance worth it? I mean, should should insurers be excluding pets from 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 policies, um, or should they be paying out? What What do you think? Are these legitimate claims if it's caused by a pet? I guess it's accidental damage, right? I think every risk has a price, right? So uh, just price appropriately for it. I think I think pet owners would be look still would still want this type of of coverage. I I think I certainly would if you know my dog you know triggered an event that triggered something bigger. I wonder how much how much damage does a pet have to do to make you sort of think twice about keeping keeping that pet. I I wonder how your boss is thinking about his his, his dog James. Well, yeah, I know exactly. But it's interesting because pet insurance has basically been born out of this trend where, you know, a lot of people are now considering a pet 
a family member. Yeah. It's at that sort of yeah. level, right? So, you know, maybe sort of you know, 15, 20 years ago, if a, if, a, if a pet was unwell, you would consider putting it down. But now you're looking at, you know, coverage and insurance and, you know, private health care to actually, you know, look at, you know, remedies for that pet. So, you know, insurers have been smart. They've spotted that trend and they've capitalized on it. And this is an example of that. And, you know, it's, it's, you know, people are obviously genuinely very affectionate towards their animals. And, you know, particularly if you've got children or whatever, and your children are, you know, very, you know, very close to your animals, it's, it's, it's tough not to treat them as, as part of the family, indeed. And, and sort of, yeah. Okay. Well, thank you all very, very much. That wraps up uh, the news for this time. So where can our listeners find out more about each of you? I'd love to hear about you know, where people can find you on your sort of websites or Twitter or LinkedIn or whatever. So firstly, ladies first, Louise. So you can certainly find out more about Pickle at www.pickle.com. That's P-I-K-L.com. Um, we've also got um, my, my personal LinkedIn. I share quite a lot of news about uh, what's what's happening uh, within Pickle um, on there. So that's uh, um, under my name, Louise Rotary. Um And we also have um, quite a lot that we post on our Facebook account as well. So uh, that's quite a good place to keep um, abreast of what's happening with Pickle. Thank you. James, where can listeners find out more about you and Dan and Bradstreet? Yeah, so um, you know, please reach out on my LinkedIn, so James Harrison, and um, on Dun & Bradstreet, it's dmb.com. Yeah, we'll be happy to help. And Khan, where can people find out more about you and Cover? Yeah, I mean, if you're if, if something that you want to reach out to me about, it's just Karn, K-A-R-N, at Cover.com. Twitter is Karn Soroya or at Cover. Thank you. And you can find out uh, more about 11FS at 11FS.com, and I'm Benjamin Ensor on LinkedIn. So thank you all very much for listening. Um, if you've enjoyed what you've heard, uh, please subscribe to our podcast. Uh, please leave us a review and help us understand what uh, you'd like to hear us talking about on future shows. Um, if you want to join the conversation, uh, please find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or InsureTech Insider. Uh, find us on Twitter at Instech Insiders or email podcasts at 11FS.com. Thank you very much and goodbye. <laughs>